News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. How good is your mental dictionary? Now, if you're wondering what that is, it's your personal dictionary in your mind with all the words that you understand and how you perceive them and how you organize them. Everyone's is unique and changing all the time. This is something our next guest studies, actually. It's Dr. Nicole Castro, Associate Professor of Communicative Disorders and Sciences at the University of Buffalo. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. How would you describe a, a mental dictionary? What is it exactly? It, oh, that's a great question. So um, an easy way to think about this is the physical dictionary we all grew up with on our bookshelf. But really what it is is just our memory storage for all the words that we've ever learned and use on a regular basis. Okay, so everyone's would be a little bit different then. Yes. So our mental dictionary is really shaped by what we've been exposed to, the languages we know, the culture we immerse ourselves in. It's really dynamic and changing all the time, just like you said. Okay. And does it change definitely like with the times as some words become more common and perhaps some fall off the radar? Absolutely. So like Google, for example, was never a word until Google came about. And so now everyone has that. And it's a verb even. It's not just a noun. People Google all the time. Um, But yeah, so generational changes happen very often. um, And we see that play out in people's dictionaries. Okay, so do we build that on our own, like depending how much we read or conversations people we talk with, like where do we gather all that information from? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, any type of language that we're receiving um, is going to shape our dictionary. So, you know, people who are avid readers tend to have larger uh, dictionaries just because they're exposed to a lot of words on a regular basis. We see this in children, that their dictionaries are really shaped by how much language exposure they have. So um, it definitely makes a difference, kind of the things we engage with and, and expose ourselves to. So when we talk about, you know, building a child's vocabulary, that's, that's very accurate then. So does that happen mainly at a young age or do we add to our mental dictionary no matter how old we are? Oh, great question. So we are constantly adding to our dictionary over time. There's definitely a huge spurt in our dictionaries as young children. So, you know, most children somewhere around 10 to 16 months of age, they're learning their first few words. um, And it just like exponentially increases. It takes off like a rocket um, in those first, you know, two, three, four years of life. They're up to thousands of words very quickly. Um, And then as we get older, it slows, but it's still progressively increasing. Um, And even in old age, um, you know, our 40s and 50s and even our 70s and 80s, we're still adding new words uh, to our dictionary. Dr. Castro, I was just laughing that you said old age and then you said 40s and 50s. I was like, calm (laughs) down, Dr. Castro, calm down. (laughs) We're all aging. We're all aging. (laughs) We are. But the nice thing is that apparently we're still adding to our mental dictionaries at that age. Absolutely. Yes. There's no um, reason to slow down. You know, the more we continue to get out there and and engage with the world, the more our dictionary will continue to grow. Okay. Do we all organize them in the same way or do we have different ways of doing that? Oh, such an interesting question. Um, You know, I think this is one of the big questions we have in the field right now is thinking about how we organize our words. Um, You know, I think there's some um, evidence to suggest that we do things kind of categorically, things that are related to each other, kind of closer to each other in our memory storage. If you think about like the file cabinet, we group things similar together. Um, But within that, from person to person, there's going to be some intricacies and differences. Um, and, and there's also some interesting work about language differences. So related a little bit to culture and language, um, how I think about words is going to be a little bit different than someone who speaks a language other than English, um, just because of the way language is used in their culture with that language. Right. Okay. So can we build on this? Like, can we make an effort to, to expand our mental dictionary? Oh, absolutely. So I think, um, you know, just exposing yourself to more new experiences, um, whether that's broadening your genre of books that you read or even the TV shows that you watch or the hobbies you engage with, everything has its own jargon, its own unique vocabulary. And so you're just going to be able to expand your dictionary in those ways. I guess it's also how we um, appreciate those words as well, isn't it? Because some people, I like, 
I'm sure you can think of a few words that you just love the sound of or words that you love and, and our brain recognizes that. Absolutely. So we do care about words that we care about. Um, and so you might be exposed to words and learn words, but it's, these are not ones you use on a regular basis or things that you um, use in your regular conversation, then they're going to kind of like fall to the bottom of the pile. They'll be much harder to get to um, if you really want that word later in time. But um, the ones that we really kind of use or enjoy, they tend to be, you know, more quickly accessed and retrieved. Okay. But how quickly? That's what I'm wondering. (laughs) The brain is an amazing thing. And here we have this mental dictionary at our fingertips, in a literal sense. But how quickly can we access these words? Very quickly. So it's happening on the order of, you know, hundreds of milliseconds, um, which is faster than most people are consciously aware of, that our brains are just working so hard and efficiently at pulling these words out. Um, And, you know, it's relying on our past kind of usage and exposures. We call it the statistics of language. Um, And so things that are common or frequent, it's going to be even faster to retrieve those. Um, And so that's why we kind of gravitate towards those really, you know, top of mind words very quickly um, because we're spouting out hundreds of words a second basically if we're having conversations. How do you study this then? How do you how do you look at this and examine it? It's a great question. So my personal research focuses a lot on when things go wrong actually. Um, So I look at speech errors and um, when we have those moments of like oh I know what the word is but I just can't get it out. Um, So that's called the tip of the tongue. We all experience that. Um, It's totally normal and natural, but it's a very interesting phenomenon to think about, you know, what went wrong? Why didn't my brain work as quickly as it normally does to get that word out? So I look at it from this kind of uh, speech error perspective to understand when things go right and wrong. Um, Other people might look at brain imaging. We might do different kinds of word retrieval tasks in the lab um, just to get people talking and see, you know, what they produce and how they produce it um, when they're having conversations. And people just, and you can track it that uniquely that when people are just having a conversation, you can tell someone's with their word that they lean towards perhaps or their mental dictionary, what it looks like. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, this is a growing area to look more at the individual level. So a lot of research has looked kind of across groups of people. You know, if I say the word cat, what's the first word that comes to mind for you? I'm going to put you on the spot. (laughs) Wow. Okay. I'm going to have to think about this then. Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Not a problem. That is Dr. Nico Castro, who's an associate professor of communicative disorders and sciences at the University of Buffalo. Essentially, if you have a conversation with Dr. Castro, uh, well, they're going to be examining the words that you use and whether or not the other person that you're talking with is using those words too. building your mental dictionary. I'm sure there are some words that you use that you know that that perhaps your spouse doesn't or your friend doesn't words that are just yours. They are part of your mental dictionary. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to have a little chat with Vaughn Palmer on this Monday. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. Okay, we're talking about decriminalization this morning. So I have to say, I, I did notice this um, this letter that came out, I guess, it's from the Harm Reduction Nurses Association, and they are not happy about the government's efforts to dial back uh, public usage of drugs. Yes. So the Nurses Harm Reduction Society and uh, Pivot Legal Society are going to court to challenge the government's new piece of legislation restricting open drug use. So this year, Simi has seen both the implementation of decriminalization here in British Columbia and the NDP government losing some of its enthusiasm for that. So one of the big things that happened in the spring was mayors and councillors saying this thing is wreaking havoc on our streets. It's leading to open drug use all over the place and we can't stop it because it's not illegal anymore. Uh, The provincial government initially scoffed at the need for it, then turned 180 degrees around and brought in a law to restrict it severely. So open drug use, uh, public spaces generally, uh, parks, recreational spaces, playgrounds, all doorways. Uh, It's all in there. And it has led to uh, a pushback from advocates of decriminalization and safe supply. They all say, Simi, oh, no, this will lead to stigmatization of drug use and the drug uh, users will go back underground 
and they'll continue to die in alarming numbers, which they are doing. So it's a, it's a struggle between where the NDP stood at the beginning of the year and its advocates and where it stands now. Um, I think the government has accepted that the public is not uh, uh, as enthusiastic mm-hmm. as the New Democrats were about this. And uh, communities are seeing the downside. And I think, I mean, I think the government's backing off for political reasons. They recognize that they didn't bring the public along on this. And I think advocates uh, should be worried that if the government didn't do things like this, uh, they would lose overall public support for the whole initiative. Exactly. We're going to be speaking, actually, to the president of that group coming up at 8.15 on the show this morning. But when we talk about decriminalization, there's a couple of examples that people point to. One that they used to point to, but not so much anymore, is Oregon, I guess. The state of Oregon. So, you know, in uh, 2020, uh, the state voted, the people there voted 58% in favor of what was the first sweeping decriminalization of drugs initiative in the United States. They were aware of the risks there. The state recognized it was going to have to top up resources for rehabilitation and drug treatment and all that. You couldn't just say, go ahead and use drugs, although they did. Um, And everybody's been watching that experiment. Uh, you know, British Columbia used to say, well, we look to Oregon, we look to Portugal. Okay. Uh, the reports that I've seen on this suggest that it is a failure to the same, de- to such a degree, Simi, that the public in Oregon has turned right around and they want to recriminalize. They, th- they see the thing as the experiment, as a failure. Uh, the most recent piece on this was in the Wall Street Journal on the weekend, but the New York Times has reported on it. The UK Economist magazine has reported on it, all with the same thing in mind. Let's see how it's going. We've been hearing from advocates for a long time that criminalizing drugs, the war on drugs wasn't working, and that this was the solution. Clearly, from the preliminary reports, and Oregon's been at it for three years now, it's not working either. Right. The, the problem is that some of the ideas sounded really good in the beginning, yeah, but the actual follow through has been very weak. For instance, it's the whole ticket thing. Yeah. So the idea down there was that you wouldn't charge people with drug possession or drug use. Right. Uh, what you would do, what the police would do is they'd give people a ticket, a $100 ticket. And if you didn't want to pay the ticket, and most users didn't and couldn't, all you had to do was phone the phone number at the bottom of the ticket, and there were rehab and treatment services available. That was the concept. Um, The stat that jumped out at me most recently is police have issued 6,000 tickets. 92 people have taken up the invitation to check in with rehab. It's, it's, you know, there's sometimes we use analogies regarding addiction and drug use, talk about, you know, uh, cancer or diabetes, the treatment's available, but it doesn't work like that. I mean, that what's really come through is that many, many people who are addicts are in such a state that uh, they aren't you know, going to take advantage of getting off drugs. And locking them up didn't work, but just saying, go ahead and use it. And if you, uh, you know, want to avoid paying a ticket, which most of them didn't pay, uh, phone this number and get into rehab, that didn't work either. So, you know, I, I think we're at a stage, certainly in Oregon, there's now coalition there, which has gotten together and which is going to put a referendum. They have uh, initiatives and referendum in Oregon uh, next year uh, that will reverse direction on this. And the indications are that the public, you know, the 58% they voted for it. Let's give it a try. It's an experiment. They're now saying it's not working. We don't like it. We want to go back to the old system. Um, Some of that has happened in Portugal as well. There have been coverage of the situation in Portugal. They decriminalized 20 years ago. So they've had a lot longer at it. Again, public support there unraveling because what you're getting is widespread public drug use 
by people that won't give up their drugs in spite of counseling and treatment available and all that. Uh, it, it isn't easy to think of a way through this, but you're losing public support for it. Indications are in the United States, nobody's going to be following the Oregon model. Seattle, Washington State, the governor approved funding for more treatment recently, but he rejected calls for decriminalization. Looking to Oregon, he said, it doesn't work. We are back with Vaughn Palmer on this Monday morning, and we wanted to talk about someone who has been really significant in BC history, uh, Vaughn Gordon Gibson Jr., Gordon Gibson Jr., and we say Jr. because his father, Gordon Gibson Sr., was a major political figure in the 1950s, took on the social credit government of W.A.C. Bennett. So Gordon uh, came from a political family and a long history. He was one of the young Turks as an advisor and political staffer to Prime Minister Trudeau, the elder, by the way, not the junior, uh, Got himself elected, Gordon did, a member of the B.C. legislature and was a member for a few years and 74 to 79, took on the Bill Bennett government on forest policy, tried to get himself elected to parliament. That didn't work. But he sought the B.C. Liberal Party leadership in uh, the 1990s, lost, finished second to Gordon Campbell. So very active there. After his uh, bid for the party leadership, Gordon really reinvented himself as a, as a pundit, a commentator, a researcher, a columnist, and so forth. Very active. I was struck, Simi, reading some of the tributes to him over the weekend, and he died Friday at age 86. Uh, a number of my colleagues who said what a delight it was to talk to Gordon Gibson Sr., Jr., because even when you disagreed with him, yeah. and many people did, he was very outspoken. He was incredibly patient and genial and outgoing. He would treat you with respect and answer your questions with respect. So he contributed a lot on a lot of fronts in BC, uh, constitutional issues, forest policy, indigenous relations. And, and, you know, some of his views are very controversial. But uh, as I say, he he made a constructive contribution to the political debate in this province over many decades and we we uh, we would obviously yeah. remember him very well from like the early 1990s because he almost became BC liberal leader. Yes, yes. I mean, he went into that arguing that he'd been a liberal long before Gordon Campbell had, which is true. Uh, his family pedigree went back to the 1950s, and uh, yeah, he came close. Uh, and and right after that leadership win, Campbell, in my view, made a big mistake. He did not reach out to the losing candidates the way he did. It would have been difficult to patch things up with Gordon Wilson, the other Gordon in that race. But uh, I think Gibson would have been, it would have helped shore up Campbell's support. Campbell went on to lose the next election by a narrow margin in 96. But in 2001, he became premier. Campbell did, won the election. And he then called on Gibson for something that I think you could argue is maybe Gordon Gibson's biggest contribution to public life in British Columbia because Campbell asked Gibson to design the Citizens' Assembly on Electoral Reform. That was to fulfill Campbell's promise that we would have a referendum in BC on changing to a form of proportional representation. Gibson's, I was looking over this morning to see what Gibson actually did. And the most important thing he did, and I think something that people would still look to, is he decided that the Citizens' Assembly should actually be a Citizens' Assembly. Gibson was deluged with people who were experts in proportional representation and electoral reform and had interests and access to grant, and they all wanted to be on the Assembly, and he turned them all down. He said no. We're going to have actual citizens. And they set up a system where they picked uh, two people per provincial constituency. There was some back and forth on this. And they provided them with research and background and answered questions and briefed them. But those citizens decided what the electoral system we were going to have would be without political interference from the government. And they picked... uh, 
a form of proportional representation called the single transferable vote. And some of us make jokes about the single transferable vote because it's hard to explain how it worked. But the thing to note is it almost passed. Uh, Gordon Campbell and the Liberals put up a very tough requirement for that to pass. It wasn't just a simple majority of 50%. You had to win constituencies in the province as well. It almost succeeded in 2005. It almost passed. It did much better than the referendum that John Horgan put in, in uh, 2018, and the one that uh, Gibson denounced as political interference. So, you know, you once in a while uh, around the world, you'll see references to BC's Citizens Assembly on electoral reform. It's unique, Simi. You, you and I it know is, very yeah. rarely do the politicians actually hand over to the people the control over something like what kind of electoral reform shall we have? And I think, you know, you, and you hit it on the head there when you say people forget just how close this came yeah. to actually making it. They fell, um, what, it was 57.69% in favor, needed 60%. Yeah. That's how close it was. And they still had yeah. the majority in 77 out of the 79 electoral districts. Yeah. Yeah, it Amazing. did. I, British Columbians. And I think, you know, I think the reason that referendum did better than, uh, say, the John Horgan one was that whatever you thought of the single transferable vote, there was no arguing that it was the choice of ordinary citizens that that was the option yes. they wanted and that the Citizens Assembly had clean hands. It was a clean institution. Not a whiff of political interference. Again, to go to the 2018 one that the Horkin government did, it was clearly crafted politically by a fellow named David Eby, uh, and there was no ability to really argue that there was no political interference. There was political interference, and it failed miserably. It was like two to one almost. So uh, Gibson, um, you know, a, a Democrat, and <laughs> I, I made a joke about the single transferable vote, Simi, but... I was thinking back to Gordon Gibson took it on himself to make a video explaining how the single transferable vote went. And it was patient and it did it it was as good as anything I've ever seen explaining the complexities yeah. of a system that had a mathematical formula in the middle of it. But uh, again, that was that was Gordon Gibson. Uh, if you if you called him up, Simi, or you had him as a guest on your show, yep. you knew you were going to get content, intelligence, and treating his critics with respect. Very true, Vaughn. Thank you. Bye, bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. This is mornings with Simi. Now, I occasionally joke at my house that I am a human weather vane. If the barometer is changing, well, then my sinuses start to act up. I get a sinus headache or maybe my allergies kick in. There's always something, it seems like, that tells me what is going on with the weather. Well, it turns out I am not alone. Studies now show a kind of odd and unexpected connection between thunderstorms and having some respiratory issues like asthma. How do we even know about this? Well, our next guest can tell us, actually. Dr. Chris Worsham is a professor of pulmonary and critical care at Harvard University and co-author of Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health, and joins us now. Dr. Worsham, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Simi. Okay. How can thunderstorms affect our health? (laughs) Well, this is a a good question, and it's um, not a completely straightforward answer. There's two main ways that we've been seeing thunderstorms affecting people's health. Um, There's been a couple dramatic incidents around the world, uh, including one uh, in Canada uh, in 2000 in Calgary, um, where pollen counts have been high when a thunderstorm comes along. And if conditions are just right, the water and the wind can blow around little particles of pollen that are normally too big to make it deep down into the lungs. And when that happens, and people are nearby where all this pollen is, uh, the pollen can make it down into their lungs and give lots and lots of people heart attack, uh, excuse me, uh, asthma attacks all at once. Uh, and there was a big uh, outbreak, um, they called it of asthma uh, a couple years ago in Australia. The other way thunderstorms um, 
can affect breathing is probably closer to what you're describing. And this is much more routine when there's all these weather changes that we can all kind of sense when a thunderstorm is coming, right? The temperatures tend to increase, the air can get a little bit more humid. And those changes that lead up to a thunderstorm uh, are not uh, what our lungs love to breathe. And that can trigger asthma attacks. It can trigger uh, difficulty breathing for patients with COPD. Wow. Okay. Now the pollen aspect that you just talked about there, that's something that I definitely feel on certain windy days. It definitely triggers allergies. And so this is more common, it sounds like, than we realize. Well, you know, people who are allergic to pollen, uh, most of us, I'm one of them, most of us know about it. And normally pollen particles are actually too big to get too deep down into your lungs. And so they get trapped in our nose, which is a natural filter um, for us. But when the when we're allergic to pollen and it gets stuck in our nose, we get that sinus pressure buildup from fluid buildup. Uh, we get hay fever. We get itchy eyes. That's why I uh, don't always look forward to the spring every year. Um, <laughs> Me too. But but then you know if we have this perfect storm of events where those pieces of pollen can get broken up and get down deep into the lungs, that's when it can cause asthma. Fortunately. Uh, those events are, are pretty uncommon. But when it has happened around the world, it can it's pretty dramatic. So when you studied this, was there a correlation between seeing these thunderstorms and people visiting perhaps emergency rooms for asthma attacks? Yeah, well, the reason we studied this was because we had read about this big outbreak of asthma in Australia back in 2016, where there were thousands and thousands of people calling ambulances for asthma and the healthcare system got overwhelmed. So what we did was we teamed up with a uh, researcher now at the University of Michigan, Eric Zhao. Um, and we uh, here in the US, we have um, publicly available data on literally every single lightning strike that happens. So we correlated all those lightning strikes with cases of asthma and COPD um, among older Americans. And what we found was that it was actually the days leading up to the storm when breathing problems were worse. Uh, and the storm itself and the days after it, um, on average, is when we actually get cleaner air usually. And so breathing problems are actually better right after the storm. Uh, so what that told us is that for the majority of cases, it's actually those those increases in temperature, those increases in um, air pollutants that rise in the days leading up to the storm that cause the most problem. Uh, these dramatic pollen episodes, um, while they happen, can be can be kind of scary, um, are not sort of the typical pattern. So is it because the air is, is more stagnant leading to a storm? Yeah, exactly. In, in, in sort of um, urban areas, the, the particles that tend to build up in the air, you might see these numbers called PM 2.5, these little tiny particles that tend to be from things like vehicle exhaust or industrial admissions. And when the air is stagnant, those pollutants build up. Um, and, and that tends to be the pattern before a thunderstorm. And our lungs just don't like that very much. Um, namely for people who are um, sensitive, people with asthma, people with smoking-related uh, lung disease. Does it matter the time of year for the thunderstorm? For instance, a, a spring thunderstorm might produce more pollen, right? Well, it, exactly. So when we're really concerned about the um, pollen being a piece of this, there's obviously seasons where there's more or less pollen around, and, and sort of that springtime is more concerning. But uh, here in Boston, at least, um, we got pummeled with storms all summer long, and we tend to have a lot of thunderstorms in the summer. So if you're just sort of playing the numbers, um, the, the more problematic storms might just be when there tend to be more thunderstorms, um, even though the pollen can cause problems for people who are sensitive and if the storm happens to hit at just the right time. Right. So what should people do then if you think, oh boy, I am sensitive to this, which I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, what do we need to do? Yes. So uh, there's a couple things and most people with asthma uh, sort of know about making sure to have their, we call it a rescue inhaler um, on hand, um, especially when you know that if you're sensitive to the weather, if there's an incoming storm, you want to have that available. Uh, the other thing is we have these um, people with more uh, 
severe cases of asthma tend to have, um, or COPD, have controller inhalers, so inhalers that they take every day. Uh, you really want to make sure that you're taking those, um, especially if you're getting into a season where you, you know you're going to be more sensitive or if you're going to be sensitive to storms. And then the last thing is, you know, public health departments are constantly monitoring the air quality. Um, the air quality in the days leading up to storms tends to be worse. So if you hear one of those advisories that suggests you stay inside um, or avoid strenuous activity because the air quality is poor, um, that often can happen in those days leading up to a storm. So you want to heed that advice. All right, we will. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That's Dr. Chris Worsham, who's a professor of pulmonary and critical care at Harvard University, co-author of Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health. I would say this is one of those hidden forces. Maybe you've never thought much about thunderstorms before impacting your health, but if you have respiratory issues, maybe you notice that leading up to a thunderstorm, yeah, you were kind of coughing a little bit more or you felt that wheeziness in your he- chest, that heaviness in your chest. And they have been able to document that the conditions leading to a thunderstorm do impact people who have asthma and respiratory issues. It's fascinating stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I hope you got a chance to experience some of the Remembrance Day ceremonies happening on Saturday. I know the weather didn't exactly cooperate here, but there were plenty of ceremonies to choose from. Now, leading up to the day, it's always important to try and tell the stories of different people, different types of service to Canada, but it's not always easy to find those stories. For instance, have you heard of the number two construction battalion? It was the first and only all black battalion during World War One. Now, Serena Burke is a teacher at Sawmill Valley Public School and author of We Remembered the Black Battalion and joins us now. Serena, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. How did you find out about the number two construction battalion? So how it all started, um, I, w- I was at school. Um, we were doing a display for Remembrance Day. And I was talking to my teacher librarian. I'm like, oh, isn't there anything um, that black soldiers did during World War <clears throat> One that we can put up and display, you know, books? And she's like, there's nothing for, there's nothing there. And I was like, what? There's nothing for young? <laughs> you thought there's, there's got to be something, right? I uh, know. That's exactly what I was thinking. I, I, I really didn't understand this. And, and this is at a time when, like, the school boards, you know, like, in Ontario, um, I'm from Ontario, and we're very big on cultural responsive teaching. And I know that's something that's, you know, going across the, the boards across Canada to do more culture responsive teaching. So now you're thinking, you know, this is where I was getting really annoyed because I'm thinking, okay, the board's telling us we got to do more culture responsive teaching. Where's the resource? How are you helping us? And it's all up on the teacher to find it and then make a lesson to do, you know, for their class. And so then I just started, um, reading myself because I was like okay there has to be something like there's no way there's nothing so that's when I started reading up on the black battalion I was actually really intrigued I was very much interested um it was an eye-opener for me I'm like a 40-something adult and I'm learning about this now okay well tell us about it then what is the number two construction battalion Oh, it's all about the, um, it's, they're a labor unit. So they were, and they, they helped the war effort by basically cutting the lumber, transporting logs to the mills and um, milling the logs. So that was their job. And, and they knew that was going to be their job when they signed up. And so like they weren't on the front lines, which, you know, which was fine. It was still an important job for them um, because that wood was used to reinforce the trenches. It was used Mm -hmm. to build the walkways across the battlefield. It was used to, um, the railway ties, you have to, you know, make the railway ties to support the railway tracks. Um, So it was used during the war and it's that labor unit that did it. And um, basically, they deserve, you know, they deserve recognition and for students to 
know more Canadian history. Like, this would be great for right. young students to learn. Like, that's, that's what I wanted. I wanted young students, grades one to six, one to seven. How hard was I it? I wanted them Ser- to learn. Serena, how hard was it for you to find this information, though? Oh, it was, um, it's all, you, if you want to learn, if you want to learn anything, you can find it on the website. You can find it online, right? But the thing is, there's a lot of misconception, misinformation online. And um, even about World War One. Yeah, with the Black Battalion. So I have this um, Canadian, um, Kathy Grant, she um, read my first edition, she read my book, and she helped correct the information, there was some misinformation. And I was kind of very like surprised where I'm like, when I found this online, it's like, it's newspaper articles. It's coming from a museum, you know, like a Canadian museum. And she's, and she was like, no, there's a lot of misconceptions and she's an expert in this field, Kathy Grant. Um, She's, she was part of the uh, national advisory apology committee uh, that the government of Canada did um, for the number two construction battalion a couple of years ago. Um, she knows a lot about this. She has, um, she does the black Canadian veteran website and it's all a great resource about the contributions all black soldiers made during the war, the different wars. What, um, what, what kind of reaction do you get from people now when they hear stories like the number two construction battalion? Are they surprised to hear about it? Um, I have um, people who are surprised. Yes, they they didn't know. Um, so far, um, none of the kids knew. Obviously, like they didn't know, and it's great um, to see them really into this. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great resource for teachers because at the end there are questions. So I like it's all for the teachers to use. Picture books are amazing. I don't care what grade level you are. Kids love picture books. That's true. And, no, they do. Like you just like start off as a jumping point. Um, I had this one grade eight teacher. She used it. She'd use it as a jumping point to start off the conversation. Use the Black Canadian Veterans website for them to start um, researching um, different soldiers and what they did. Um, and then they did a reflection piece afterwards and kind of reread the story again to make sure you understood um, well, Serena, more if, about it. Yeah. Serena, if people do want to learn more about it, like what, where would you recommend they go online to, to learn more about stories like this? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, um, you can obviously go online. You can go, you can just Google search it. Um, by all means, you can buy the book if you want your children to learn it or teachers if you want your classes uh, to learn about it. Um, it's, there's no, like, it's everywhere. Um, it is better. Like, you'll, you'll find the information. If, you, if you're interested in it, you just right. have to Google it. You'll find the information. All right. We're going to look for it then for sure. Thank you so much for teaching us about it. Okay, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's Serena Verk. Uh, Serena is a teacher at Sawmill Valley Public School and the author of We Remember the Black Battalion. She couldn't get any information about the number two construction battalion uh, from the first world war, so she wrote the textbook on it, essentially. By the way, there is a lot of, as she mentioned, first world war information online. It all got, a lot of it got digitized with the 100th anniversary back in 2014. It is phenomenal, the amount of information that you can now find on there about perhaps relatives that you had in the war, just anything having to do with it. You'll find a lot of information online now. This is Mornings with Simi. Ah, next year. That's what BC Lions fans are telling themselves today after the team lost the Western Conference Final in Winnipeg 24-13 over the weekend. But you know what? Great year, great season that we had. We're going to find out how Coach Rick Campbell is doing this morning. He joins us now. Morning, Coach. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? That's the more important question. Well, in the short term right now, we're disappointed. Um, yeah, we we were really optimistic going into that game. We just ended up not playing well enough. Um, it was just one of those days. It wasn't from lack of want to or effort. It just was we never could get in a groove. 
um, especially offensively, and um, just didn't get it done. How is the team feeling? Like, was there that awareness happening afterwards when you talked to them about it? Yeah, I mean, guys are definitely disappointed. I really like this group. They really care a lot. They work hard. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're going to be disappointed for a bit, which is, which is understandable. And I'm glad they care so much. And then, but in the big picture, um, you know, as the BC Lions, we're very optimistic about what's going on around here. Yeah, there was a lot to actually look forward to. When you look at this team, there's a lot of promise for even next season, isn't there? Yeah, we really, but we're really striving for continuity. There's going to be change every year, but we're really going to try to keep as many people around here as we can and, and keep, keep building. And um, both on and off the field, there's a lot of good things happening around here. And I think if we keep working at it, then uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep going in a positive direction. Okay, when does that process start then, Coach? So obviously you have to take some time to digest this season and what happened, but that off-season process, when does that begin? It, it starts right away. Football's a 12-month thing, so we actually meet with the team today, and we do exit interviews and you know, get feedback and do all those things. That's fast. Um, it is just it's the logistically it's you know we're all over North America the people you know players and coaches they live all over the place so um, we just want to make sure while everyone's in house we we start that process but we do give ourselves time you know everything's still fresh and a little bit emotional so we want to let things settle down and make sure we're making good choices but um, we start that process today as far as players checking out as far as equipment and just all the logistic things that need to happen. So in terms of planning for 2024, then are you already kind of in your head thinking, well, we could try this and then we could do this? Yeah, yeah, we definitely, it's it's our personnel departments on the go all the time. And so um, things happen and we got to talk to coaches and, and do all those things. So it, it happens quickly. And, you know, as the season winds down for everybody, then um, it's just a it's a it's a fast process, and you kind of you got to be on top of things twenty four seven. Okay, now next year is a particularly big year with Vancouver hosting the Grey Cup. So, how do you what do you factor into that? Well, our process doesn't isn't different. You know, we're we're trying to win the Grey Cup every year, but totally excited about it being back in Vancouver. I think it's been ten years, and so um, I remember the last time the Grey Cup was in Vancouver. I believe that was two thousand fourteen, and um, it was awesome. And I yeah. know it's going to be a be a big party, and our there, there's a lot of work going into it. And there'll there'll be a football game, but there'll be a lot of other stuff going on too. So it's going to be a big. Big year and a big Grey Cup for uh, for Vancouver. That's the ultimate home field advantage. That was I know we talked in the past about how important it is to get that for for especially for these playoff games. This is the ultimate one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're gonna do our best to make sure we're in that game and uh, and uh, be playing a BC place would be awesome. That would be awesome. Okay, so what about your off season? You said football's a twelve month thing, but come on, you have to take a bit of a vacation. Yeah, I, well, the big thing is, like I said, it's, everything's kind of fresh, so you don't want to make emotional decisions or things like that where you're, you know, that you want to make sure you um, give give time yeah. things to, you know, process and Take digest, and then, uh, and then we'll keep going, yeah. All right, well, yeah. I hope you get some downtime. I hope you enjoy yourself. Thank somewhere. you. Okay, good. I, I, I will do that. Thank you. Okay, we look forward to talking to you soon, okay? Yeah, and thanks for talking BC Lions football. I've really enjoyed talking to you every week. So I love it, too. It. So nice of you to say. So I look forward to talking to you in a few months. Enjoy yourself until then. Okay, you too. Thank you. Thanks, Coach. And great season. Great job. Uh, That is Rick Campbell, head coach of the BC Lions. Yeah, they're a little disappointed, of course, with that outcome. 24-13 Western final loss in Winnipeg. They're already planning for next season, which I find remarkable, right? You lose on the weekend, and this morning they're going to be starting the exit interview process, talking to the players, things that can be changed, making plans for next year. And I look forward to the chance to talk to Coach Campbell again because, you know, they're just doing great things, and next year is going to be a promising one for the team for sure. And, yes, we are hosting the Grey Cup next year too. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I love a good museum exhibit that teaches me something that I don't know. And there's one in particular at the Smithsonian that I would say you would probably have trouble finding anywhere else or learning about anywhere else for that matter. It has to do with carrier pigeons and their importance during World War One. Yes, carrier pigeons. Uh, Dr. Frank, Bla- Frank Blazich is the Museum Curator of Political and Military History at the Smithsonian Institution and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, and thank you for having me on. First of all, what a fascinating job you have. Is it like something great every single day? Yes. 
One of the fun aspects of working at a museum is you, you never exactly have two days alike, and you never know what you're going to encounter when you walk into the building in the morning. And uh, a great example of that is, are pigeons, because uh, certainly we have them outside the museum grounds, but it's something else to walk into storage and encounter not one but four uh, former military homing pigeons that we have in our collection. Wow. Okay, so how important were carrier pigeons during the war? Uh, well, the use of pigeons for carrying messages goes back uh, to ancient times, but from war's perspective, it's really during the Siege of Paris, during the Franco-Prussian War for about 1878-1871, uh, that pigeons really caught the fascination of the world's militaries. And in this case, the French officials were actually able to take pigeons out of the city by balloon, and then the pigeons would fly back into Paris carrying essentially uh, early forms of microfilm. And they were able to bring in hundreds, uh, tens of thousands of messages, uh, very small messages. You could call these the original tweets, if you will, <laughs> and bring them back into Paris. And it really opened the military's eyes to, wow, you know, pigeons can overcome sieges. They can overcome attempts to block communications on the ground. This came to the forefront during the Great War, World War One, when you have uh, industrialized warfare with the ma massed artillery fires, uh, heavy use of automatic weapons, machine guns, and it, with the static lines of the Western Front, it really made it near impossible at times to get a message out by human runner or by a vehicle, for example, or particularly by wired communications. Radio is still in its infancy, and these are very fragile units, not really ideal for the rough-and-tumble battlefields. And wired communications are great until you have artillery cutting the lines or the enemy actually going out and mm -hmm. tapping the wires, literally connecting one wire to another and listening in on your communications. But a pigeon could carry a written message, fly out up over and above the trenches, and were highly effective, they, about 95 to 99% accuracy, in wow. fact. Uh, the, pigeon would get, the pigeon would get through, so but nothing I, else could. I know there's one in particular that you focus on in your exhibit called Cher Ami. What do we know about this pigeon? So Cher Ami, arguably, and I use the word arguably if folks would like to, to debate the fact, is perhaps the most famous pigeon in the world, at least to Americans. And Americans, we, we always like to say we're first, and we always like to <laughs> <laughs> pump out our chest there. Uh, sorry about that. Cherami uh, is actually English. is an English-bred homing pigeon. Cherami, uh, I believe, and again, it's somewhat up for debate, uh, was, would be hatched about April of 1918 and was one of 600 English-bred pigeons that were donated by the the British military to the United States Army on May 20th, 1918. Uh, Jeremy was essentially you know, no different than, all, than the 599 other pigeons. But what makes Jeremy's story most fascinating and really put the bird into the place of legend is that according to, according to the legend, according to the, the story, on October 4th, 1918, Jeremy was the seventh of eight pigeons uh, to carry a message out from the Charlevoix Ravine of the men of what were known as the Lost Battalion. This was a kind of a composite unit of the 308th Infantry Regiment that found itself surrounded by the German forces in the Argonne Forest. And when all hope seemed lost, this little one-pound mass of flesh and feathers delivered a message under withering German fire back to American lines, which would play a vital role in the relief of this unit several days later. And oh. in the course of this action, I left out the one key element, <laughs> and in the course of this action while flying out, Sheremy uh, was hit by either a German bullet or perhaps a, a fragment of an artillery shell that almost completely severed the bird's right leg and then cut across the breastbone and took out about a dime size, uh, actually left a dime size hole in the bird's sternum. Despite these wounds, Jeremy still managed to fly back to his loft with the message just with the message and its little aluminum capsule just dangling from the remains of the right leg. Uh, wow. But Jeremy made it back, and the message made it back. So really an incredible, an incredible story of just fortitude under the most 
terrible of conditions. And really for this reason, more than anything, Cherami is remembered today. That is amazing. And do you find that people don't know a lot about this history? People know about Cherami. <laughs> but perhaps animals in war, uh, those stories are not as well known. They're somewhat niche to many audiences. And it really comes to a shock to many people that the smallest combatants in the war were the were pigeons. And that pigeons played a really vital role. They were extensively used by the French Army, uh, by the, the British Army or the British Expeditionary Forces, including the Canadian Expeditionary Forces used pigeons. Uh, the Americans coming, in our, as typical of us, we typically come after the war has started. <laughs> when we entered the war in, uh, in you know, the summer of 1917, we didn't use pigeons. And it was British and French officials who came to America saying, you all have to have these. And we swiftly set up our pigeon forces thereafter. Germans used pigeons. Uh, the Austro-Hungarians used pigeons. The Japanese, the Italians, everybody used pigeons. They, they were critical. Uh, they were a critical component of the battlefield and, so and did, not just uh, an oddity. Right. Did that change, obviously, then, I guess, because of technology during World War One, World War Two? Yes and no. In fact, pigeons continued to be used into the Second World War. Uh, there are a number of notable stories of pigeons, particularly in the Royal Air Force's uh, Coastal Command and Bomber Command, uh, would carry pigeons as backup communications in the event that the aircraft would go down uh, by accident or by enemy action. Uh, pigeons found themselves used on the battlefields. Uh, they were carried into action on the chest harnesses of paratroopers. So pigeons actually jumped into battle. Uh, pigeons uh, found themselves occasionally at sea. In fact, the U.S. Navy used them in Okinawa uh, to, to fly uh, information for ships as they were staging their way to unload their cargoes. They actually found that pigeons were an effective message to communicate from ship to shore. Uh, in the First World War, pigeons were used in tanks. Uh, they were used in submarines, in fact. In the Second World War, pigeons found themselves used in blimps on anti-submarine huh. patrol because a pigeon would not reveal the blimp's location. The submarine wouldn't detect a radio signal. So a pigeon was kind of a stealthy way to communicate, so to speak. Pigeons were used by French resistance. Pigeons found themselves a vital role in actually uh, to gather information from German-occupied Western Europe. Uh, the British, in some cases, would fly aircraft over uh, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and actually parachute pigeons down with the hope that uh, locals would find the birds and answer a questionnaire and provide information on German forces in the area. Amazing. So, Something that seemed obsolete with all yeah. the advances in radio communications, pigeons continued to be reliable. In fact, more reliable. Uh, the U.S. Army reported a 99% accuracy rate. Wow. Pigeons. You know, Dr. Blasard, you've uh, convinced me that I need to make a trip to the Smithsonian to see all of this in person, which is what I would really love to do. Listen, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. That's Dr. Frank Blazich, Museum Curator of Political and Military History at the Smithsonian Institution. And honestly, that is on my bucket list. I would love to go and see anything, really, at any of the exhibits at the Smithsonian.